This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. Welcome to Health Stories. This is where we invite clinicians and patients to share their stories about how they navigate the U.S. healthcare system. I'm joined again by Dr. Burke, who, uh, as we had said in part one, works for an administrative company uh, that manages self-funded health plans. So welcome back, Dr. Burke. Thanks, Nicole. So we're going to continue this really fascinating uh, podcast, so usually about 40 minutes, but we've already spent an hour for part one, uh, really diving in and and trying to understand, be a little more transparent about health insurance. Um, We have a lot of questions I think all of us face about the claims we get, about uh, what prescriptions are are not covered, what happens in the hospital, um, in and outpatient uh, doctors who are covered in and out of the network. Um, So we're going to spend part two um, really uh, asking questions um, to figure out what we can do. And that is for all of us who are listening, um, what are some uh, pieces of advice and tips that you have for us? Uh, We're going to go back to these uh, different sections that we had of claims, prescription, hospital, and outpatient. Uh, We'll end with some big overarching questions about the industry itself uh, for health insurance. But going back to claims and bills, um, so what can you do if you get a claim, Um, and especially if a, I'm sorry, if a claim is denied? What can we do? So certainly whether you have a self-funded plan or an insurance plan, you have uh, appeal rights. They're they're pretty firm. There's uh, multiple levels of appeals on on either side. I can speak to the experience we have in our health plan, and that uh, once you have an adverse determination, uh, you have at least two levels, perhaps three levels of appeal. At the third level, if it's a medical necessity determination, if it's a plan determination, really at the first two levels. So it's typically pretty well spelled out in your plan document, which for us is like 100 pages long and it's hard to read. It's better as a reference when you need something as opposed to learning the plan. But it'll be there pretty specifically, here's how to do an appeal. Or easier just to call up the customer service folks and say, oh, you know, I have a claim, I want to appeal this. Well, here's what you need to do. Forms online, fill it out, do this. So the appeal process typically starts with that sort of that first level appeal, which for us is it um, goes back to the first um, medical director that denied it and said, okay, what do you think, you know, can we overturn this? The best way to send in an appeal is gonna be additional information because if you send in the same information, it's pretty much been denied already, less likely to be overturned. I will say, however, even in this uh, process, if that first doc looked at it before can't change the uh, the opinion, the second doc looks at it then. So there's so the second doc may have a different opinion. Um, but you're doing this though. The insurance, the health this, insurance this is, company is going to different doctors. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. this, exactly. This all happens. The uh, this is the health. The insurance. behind the scenes, the Wizard of Oz. That's what we like to call happens. it. The behind Absolutely. the scenes. Okay. Yeah, this is the behind the scenes. Yeah. Where um, uh, and we'll talk maybe specifically about how you how you best do an appeal in a second. But the process on the back end is. Uh, your appeal comes in, it's reviewed by uh, typically the person who made the determination. Mm, uh, yeah, that's more information, I can overturn that, done. Nope, same information, still can't do it. Goes to that second medical person, physician to look at. They look at it, no, sorry, you know, we really can't overturn. Then you get that letter saying, nope, no go. 
With our health plan, you have the option of that second level appeal, which actually doesn't go to a medical person, it goes to the health plan itself. Okay. So the plan basically holds the money. They get to decide, okay, based on what the patient's saying, what the medical folks are saying, what your doctor might be saying, all the information, they get to say, yeah, I think, I think I, we should probably cover that for this person. They're making a good argument, or they say, no, we can't really do that. Um, and then there's a, a third level, if it's a medical necessity determination, where there's companies called external review organizations or companies, where uh, at least the federally governed companies or uh, insurance plans, if you, see, you have to send them all the information out, and whatever determination they make, uh, you have to abide by. It's a even, final determination. Yeah. So even though you, as the medical department, say, no, the plan said, no way, we're not paying for this. If, if that external person said, you're paying for it, you know, all bets are off, you have to pay for it. Um, I will say that um, part of the um, process that may best work out, you know, if you want to make your best appeal possible, which is certainly you know the way you want to do, it, you only have a certain number of appeals to do. Um, you want to try to get your doc to help you, and most docs are usually okay with that because they they want to advocate for you. Uh, so they'll be they'll write a letter on your behalf or uh, or send some uh, information. Folks that I've talked to before that I try to help through the process, those are folks who really come to me directly. I'm like, well, I can't really talk about the case, but I can help you through the process. I say, write down your information, your thoughts, you know, everything that you're experiencing, that you, the reasons why you feel this should be paid. Get your doctor to back that up uh, and send all that information in. Uh, and then we review that uh, and then we uh, move that forward. Additional information is always probably the best, the best way to, uh, to go about getting uh, an, an overturned denial. So, so to use a specific example for people who are listening, so um, in the first part, I talked about getting a claim that was 18 months later, mm-hmm. right? So they denied a claim. So in my case, um, I was in the hospital, they denied the claim. Mm-hmm. What do I do? So in that case, and uh, I forgot to mention this before, so the first thing you want to ask, you know, you call up your insurance company and say, well, why was it denied? You, know, you sort of need to know that. And uh, if it's, you know, oh, because you didn't fill out this questionnaire form, or you know, if it's more of a technicality, then it's, hey, okay, well, how do I do that, and how do I make this right? Uh, if they tell you the reason, it really is a medical reason uh, versus a benefit reason. Um, it may help you determine how you want to uh, go about doing the appeal. I would imagine even if it's a, a plan determination, like, well, your plan doesn't cover this, you probably want your doctor backing you up. There's been a number of times that even over their own health plan that uh, the plan will say, yeah, all right, got it. We typically don't cover this, but in this situation, all right, we'll do it. The one thing we all we always do uh, is look at each individual's uh, situation as an individual situation because it's not always the same. There are some generalities and sort of typical stuff that we can we can work through. Our guidelines are based on that. It's it's very typical stuff, uh, but there are certain circumstances where we look at it and say, for this person at this time with this thing, yeah, you know. It doesn't really fall clearly under the guidelines of the plan, so we always try to err on the side of the patient and say, "Yeah, yeah, this is something we can cover." But you were saying before, if you know, so I'm thinking inpatient, or I'm saying, I'm thinking outpatient. I know my my primary care provider, I know mm-hmm. the doctor, oh, the ENT, but I'm in the hospital. So what do I do uh, if because yeah. you had said to get the doc to help you? Yeah. So I so I'm thinking in terms of the appeal. So one of the mm-hmm. things they had said on the phone, I called up my insurance company and I said, you know, why did you deny this? They had explained why, and they said all you have to do is write a letter explaining why you went to the hospital. Mm-hmm. I said, excuse me, I'm <laughs> not a clinician. I don't know. 
you know, and I consider myself fairly health literate. Um, mm-hmm. We had another podcast uh, of somebody who was talking, a physician who said it's, you know, 10, 12% of the population is considered literate. And she herself said, I don't even understand 100% of what I'm told. So how can we write, you know, our own letter um, and really uh, write a good appeal? So how, how do we go about doing yeah, that? Yeah, from a hospital perspective, you're right, it would be more challenging because typically the bill you're going to get is from the hospital. It's not going right. to be from the doctor you might have seen. You know, eight different doctors when you're in the hospital and your primary doctor in the hospital may not be your regular doctor mm-hmm. so then you you are more likely to be on your own around that so in situations where there's specific medical information that would overturn that denial it's going to be a challenge I will say as much detail as you can describe even in layman's terms will be helpful because there will be people in the insurance side uh, in the medical field that will review that and usually can sort of put two and two together to say, okay, they're describing this. I think medically that's really what was going on. Um, and they can try to build the story from the, on the medical side without actually you saying some of the medical stuff. But if there's certain lab values or test findings that you know are necessary in order to approve the process, um, that may be challenging to, yeah. uh, to really try to get at. I'm not sure insurance companies are always like, uh, they're supposed to be sort of specific about why they deny something. Not that it just wasn't medically necessary, but why wasn't medically necessary? Why wasn't it medically necessary? So you may look at the letter and say, uh, "Okay, it wasn't medically necessary to have that third colonoscopy because you've already had two while you were in the hospital." And if you did what we had talked about earlier and really asked some questions before, and you knew why it happened a third time, so that you can really just document that in your letter, uh, and that likely would suffice. Uh, versus trying to document that you would ask the doctor why yeah. you're doing it the third time. Uh, and, and hopefully you heard the answer and understood the answer. Which makes me think, so one of the things, we haven't even gotten to the hospital questions, but what I'm hearing you say too is that when you are in the hospital, for example, is keep, an, you know, if you can or you have family members or support, have them document the conversations that are happening because that might actually come up later in your insurance claims. Yeah, because you can really use that um, in your appeal to make your appeal more um, uh, accurate, yeah. more uh, likely to overturn. Interesting. And, but I still also can't help but think that, you know, for those of us who are less literate, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you have a disadvantage when you're trying to make an argument. There are plenty of times, we, you know, we get appeals from members. Well, my doctor said I needed this and he ordered it. And that's pretty much the extent of it. Uh, so there is the benefit that you still have another physician looking at the whole case. Uh, at least in our situation, I think it's just pretty much universal, where someone else will put fresh eyes on it and say, all right, let, let me look through and see. Um, but without any additional information, the, the likelihood that the second doc will make a different decision medically than the first, if it happens a lot, then there's some internal problems with that uh, insurance company. Usually they're, they're going to be pretty similar if the information is the same. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I guess the question is, is it worth the time and effort to fight a claim um, that was denied or to refute it? Do patients, I want to know the percentage here, do patients usually win or do they usually lose these battles? Yeah, good is call. It, is it worth our time? So there's, there's uh, some of that has to, is up to you. So if it's a $20 charge, you know, you can decide, oh, you know what, I know that the reason why they didn't pay for that, and they probably should have, if you want to, it's going to take you time. If you want to spend the time to get that, you certainly can. Um, or if you have the time. Right. I, we had a, um, a situation recently in our health plan where um, 
we did what we had to correctly. There was a, a durable medical equipment supply that was dispensed to somebody from a, a provider that wasn't participating with us. Um, oh, out of network. So there was, um, it was like an extra $15 charge. So the, the person who had that charge was like, I don't want to pay this. You know, here's my appeal. Ultimately, that was overturned because she had a legitimate reason. But there was a lot of effort. It was, a, it was actually a second level appeal from, from her standpoint. So she had to write some letters and, you know, do some waiting and stuff. And she got overturned. So it was worth yeah. the $15 maybe. Larger, um, larger dollar amounts. For me, I'm relatively cheap. I would probably appeal anything that, I, that came my way. Uh, the ones that are going to be challenging are one uh, claims with a health plan just doesn't pay for it. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I think you guys should pay for this. This is really important. Oh, it's not normally covered. Right. It's sort uh-huh. of it's been, it's been uh, you know it's clear we don't cover these things. Now, there's some interesting things that have happened along those lines. So I'd say well, from the medical necessity determination. Typically, as I said, because we at least err on the side of the member, it's pretty rare for those to be overturned. Usually we're like, um, they do. For denials or? Denials to be overturned, they're typically upheld, the denial is, for medical necessity. Interesting. They're not very frequently denied for medical necessity reason, but when they are, they're usually uh, uh, upheld. There are plenty that aren't, but the majority are uh, upheld. So it's not worth our time trying to appeal it it because it doesn't matter. With, uh, I'm not sure how it works with the insurance company. I've been the big insurance companies. This is a self-funded uh, plan. It's going to be very variable. It's probably worth it uh, to make it. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's 99% of the time not going to be able to But we've got three it. chances, right? Because there's three appeal steps. Absolutely. So if it's denied the first appeal, mm-hmm. you can keep going. Okay, really, that's Other than the writing the letters, uh, there's no harm to you uh, except for some of your time. Yeah. Or like that external review I was describing, that's completely paid for by the plan. They have to pay for that. That's part of the law. Uh, so you're not paying for any of these. They're all uh, offered to you as some of your, your rights uh, to, to be able to do that. With um, the, the plan exclusion, so to speak, things that the plan doesn't pay for, they're like, I think you should pay for voluntary um, reversal of my voluntary um, uh, sterilization. I was young back then, and now I have all these different things I want to do. I think as a plan, you should probably pay for that. So typically, the medical folks don't really, you can send in that first level appeal, but it's not a medical determination. The plan just doesn't cover that. So we typically recommend it goes right to that plan to look for the second level appeal. So it's for they, the plan then gets to make the determination, say, yeah, in this case, because of these circumstances, we will or we won't. Interestingly enough, there's a, a couple of things that happen if the plan decides to let something like that happen. One, you're setting a precedent. Mm-hmm. Anytime I make the medical decisions, I always think, I know the next door neighbor has the same health plan, has the exact same condition, and I better be consistent with my, my determination. So we have to be you know, very objective as we can and very consistent. So the plan is to think about that too. If they're covering it for one, the situations are always going to be slightly different, um, but they need to make sure that they're yeah. consistent throughout. The other piece of it is interestingly um, uh, the stop loss coverage. So that's that insurance coverage that sort of holds on top. Typically what will happen if you make a determination as the health plan to say, yeah, stop loss carry, you have our health plan, this is the rules we follow, and you deviate from that, they likely for that specific individual no longer cover you. So if something mm-hmm. happens related to the, the reason you said yes, you can you know pay for that voluntary reversal. Order, yeah, yeah uh, and it turns out there's huge complications. The stop loss carrier is gonna say, you told us you don't pay for that. You decided on your own to pay for that. Now you're really stuck with all the bills following oh, that, even if it's a million dollar um, uh, mistake. So the health plan themselves have to really sort of think about those things. All of us, especially when we get letters from patients, are like, oh, that really sucks. You know, we want to be able to figure out some way to approve this based on how the plan is formed. The plan sponsor usually wants to do the same thing. Like, how do we, is there a way we can possibly pay for this and still be consistent and still, you know, have the coverage that we need? Um, so there's 
rarely in my experience have there been folks who are like, yeah, just don't do it. Um, but I think that's the perception that we have. You know, we didn't really get into this in the first half, but isn't that the perception that we have? I know I do. You know, health insurance is like mm -hmm. big pharma. Yep. You know, always money grabbing and, you know, trying to, to make money. You even talked about the capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you're basically saying there are human beings behind these decisions and you actually want to do what's in the best interest of the members, which are the patients. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, sometimes it, it, it doesn't happen because, you know, it wasn't covered or you end up having to eat some of the additional costs, etc. And mm -hmm. sometimes it does. Um, but these are human beings making these decisions and it's not the same for everyone, which is why my neighbor, for example, not not in real life, yeah. but it you know, I've heard people say my neighbor had the same procedure and it was covered mm -hmm. and it wasn't covered for me. Mm -hmm. How's that possible? Yeah. And you're saying it's because you actually do look at some of these as an individual we, case. Yeah, well they, we actually look at them all individually. We try to as best we can, just like anything in medicine, try to fit everything into sort of a a, um, uh, a category. Okay, if you have this, you typically need to have this. So we say, all right, if the plan doesn't cover this, no matter what, it's not going to cover. But there are going to be some uh, uh, individual circumstances. We try to we, we take we always take that into account with each uh, circumstance. Certainly on appeal, it makes uh, makes a difference. So I think you're right. There are sort of the, the human beings behind the uh, the decisions, and I think the perception is what you describe. Said, you know, it's my perception, it had been my perception as well before, it was behind the curtain. Because <laughs> uh, you're getting a letter saying denied because of this reason, and then after X amount of time, 30 days, you're getting another letter saying, yep, and it's a pretty form letter. Yeah. It's, it's not pretty, but it's a uh, it's essentially a form letter, so it's, yeah. it seems very cold and very impersonal, yep. where there's a lot of, there could have been, you know, a dozen people on the back end really arguing back and forth and saying, well, here's why we should do it, here's why we shouldn't, what do you think about this, this is what we've done before, and it's really, they, you know, we try to do the best we can to make the best decisions because we're thinking about you, the patient, and we're thinking about the other folks that are on the plan. So, you know, we're, we're basically in our self-funded plan where we're, you're, you're giving us your money as you, through your premiums and your, and your uh, employers giving us some money. We have to try to do our best to spend it as judici judiciously as possible. So we're, we're essentially the de facto stewards of that money. Over time, we'll talk about maybe the future. I think that's going to move away from the management companies and more into you know patients and physicians. But for now, we're sort of sort of stuck in the middle trying to manage those uh, costs. And thinking about how much time physicians spend talking to insurance companies. I mean, you keep talking mm -hmm. about we go back to the provider, we go back to the provider. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think about how much time the providers have with the patients. Between patients, they're on the phone, it sounds like, office calling. Staff, it, yeah. Offices typically have multiple staff just to do with insurance just companies. Just to do insurance, yeah. Uh, not, you know, regardless of the, uh, the provider themselves having to take time to do stuff. So there yeah, is a lot of um, yeah. waste in the system. Yeah, sure. interesting. So going back for the listener, um, when you have a claim denied, it's, it's worth writing the appeal. Um, even though it also sounds like a lot of them are denied, but you have three mm -hmm. appeal phases and again this might vary depending on the insurance. Yep. Um, get a doctor to help you or some clinical speak to help you with that information. Mm -hmm. Call the insurance company to find out the reason. Yeah. Um, I will say uh, yeah. briefly with that, uh, with us and maybe others, if you typically with a medical necessity denial that's done by their care management, the medical management department, you may be able to talk to a um, um, uh, a nurse there or somebody who's in that department say, hey, why was it denied? They can give you some more information than maybe the, the call center can. And you maybe ask them, is there a way for me to get this approved? What can I, what can I uh, say? You just ask them. They may or may oh, not nice. know. Okay. 
Uh, and there are certain rights you actually have when something is denied, like you can uh, request all the information that was used to make that determination, any guideline that was used, uh, the credentials, and even the name of the person who made the decision. So all these things are uh, are available to you by law. So request that, okay. Yeah, and that well, may be able to help you say, okay, I saw your guideline. There's only this one little piece, and maybe talk to your doctor about it. Yeah, good. So um, talked about some claims and bills, moving on to prescriptions, can't help but wonder how can we reduce some of our costs. So going back to what we talked about in part one, I, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm kind of curious, you know, should I be going to Walmart more often or, you know, should I be paying out of pocket for some of these, you know, how much inquiry and shopping around should we be doing? Yeah, so I think um, it's an interesting question because my first answer is uh, if you have a condition that um, lends itself to getting better with diet and exercise, quitting smoking, getting healthier, do that and just get off the medicines. So that's, that's, you know, obviously, and, and frankly, you know, a large majority of folks out there are taking a number of medicines, they can do that. Of course, some can. So then the next thing is, you know, can you do a generic? That's always, um, typically with generics today, unless your doctor's writing brand medically necessary, uh, you're going to automatically, uh, if there's a generic available, you're going to get that automatically substituted. Uh, so unless there's, Usually the only one that comes to mind is like uh, some of the brand name thyroid medicines that uh, there may be some clinical evidence that they may have some uh, effic more efficacy or consistency or the generic. Yeah. Uh, Synthroid and Levo, uh, Levoxyl are the brand names of levothyroxine. Yeah. There's some controversy around that. Tough to say. I think some of the endocrinologists say, yeah, you should do brand. Other times you shouldn't. Other than that, for the most part, the generic is, is going to be just as equivalent. So we get that. Uh, shopping around, as, as I found out for myself uh, just recently, uh, makes a difference. I've heard that from folks that you should do that anyway, but uh, not only my own example, but I've heard others say that there is a big difference even among the retailers with certain medications. There's a lot of online stuff you can look at now to even compare drug costs from you know your big box places to you know maybe your uh, from more local pharmacies. Just give them a call and say, hey, here's the script. Especially for your chronic meds, some of your the ones you need you acutely, the ones you need right away. Yeah. Um, there may not be a huge difference in uh, in price, or maybe. But the ones you're taking all the time, that's going to add up for uh, for a while. So you're going to want to do some research on that. You may have more time to do research on those. Is it worth to call up your insurance company and ask for a reduced rate? Can we do that, or is that pretty much set in stone? Um, typically, what you're getting from your insurance company is the, the copay. So the copay is part of the plan. So you're going to be paying that. Um, the cost is really going to come from the person, the people, you're, the provider you're getting it from. So start with the provider and say, because this actually happened to somebody that I know recently. They said to me um, they were on some diabetes medication, mm -hmm. and the physician I don't remember had put them on a new medication that was twelve hundred dollars or mm -hmm. something, and that was with insurance. Mm -hmm. And they said, I don't know what to do. And I, uh, my suggestion was twofold. Um, so tell me if this was right to say, go back to your provider and say, is there any generic or any difference? Mm -hmm. um, the response they got was no, this was the latest. And so yeah. there wasn't. Mm -hmm. But then two, to talk to a pharmacist and say, is there anything else or any, you know, so, so what suggestions do you have? If, no, you, if I, you are put on a regular medication, so we're talking daily mm -hmm. chronic condition med. Diabetes is a great example because we're seeing a lot of new medicines out there, new categories of medicines. So when that happens, they're all going to be brand name. Uh, they're all going to have. And they're uh, not covered. It sounds like it wasn't covered, unless twelve hundred dollars was partially covered. It sounds like it was because oh, wow. these medicines are much more expensive than that. Oh, interesting. So, it, so okay. that may have been their contribution to what the employer, additional employers, uh, employer was paying for that. So in those situations, it's, it's brand name medication. You can 
do the copay card, like we talked about before right. on the other side, this is because there's not going to really be a generic equivalent that exists. So the manufacturer may be able to help you with that kind of card. I know a lot of the um, uh, medicines for rheumatoid arthritis, some of the really expensive ones, they can cover up to $15,000 a year of your copay. Um, so, there's so going through the prescription, the pharmacy, or the... It's actually probably through the manufacturer. Through the manufacturer itself. And the pharmacy okay. likely can help you do that. Okay. The internet's going to be helpful in this situation too. Either the manufacturer's website itself, they're, they're going to be pretty clear about it. They have uh, patient assistance, so look at one of the top bars. There are websites out there, general websites, that, that help you with um, uh, prescription stuff. Like, a, um, I don't know if I'm not sure it's named this anymore, but Needy Meds was one that I remember from years ago. Needy, needy Meds. Meds, Needy Meds. Yeah, where they can help you um, uh, get medication sort of at a reduced rate, uh, depending on you know what type you're taking. As we said, even some of the generics can be expensive still. Now, how do you work, uh, work through some of that? But there are um, uh, process for, uh, processes for that. Some practices now, even with the patient-centered medical home, have resources within the practice to be able to help you through that if they have like a care manager or something in the practice um, that 10 years ago that nobody really had. So there's a potential there where you may be able to get some assistance from the, uh, the practice itself. So the site that you're going to, the provider, him or herself, the site where they work, and then also the pharmacist, pharmacist. when you actually go pick it yeah. up to say, wait a minute, is there something online, or can I go through the manufacturer, what ideas do you have? So I would say, start, yeah, start with your doc and just like, you know, you would say, is there any other medication I can take instead of this? And there's not, the pharmacy is probably your next best bet. Yeah. You know, you can, you know, tool around on the internet if you're sort of savvy with that and see if something pops up. But I think your pharmacist is going to be your best, your best bet. They'll they'll know what the uh, what the manufacturers offer and, and how folks are able to get better discounts. So having done claims and bills and prescription, next hospital. The number one question I have heard and myself have experienced: How on earth can I cut my hospital bill while I'm still in the hospital? Is it possible? You know, to avoid some of these extraneous charges for things that are, you know, less important, unimportant. Um, so how do I do that? How, how can I be a better consumer while I'm in the hospital? Because we all get slapped with a huge bill, even with quote-unquote good insurance. Yeah, this is probably one of the tougher questions because I think we're, we're just moving into that transparency piece on the outpatient side. So I need a test. It's not urgent that I need it today. Let me, let me figure out. Let me go on some websites. Let me look at some stuff. Let me ask some people. See if I can get a, you know, my insurance company ask around and get the best deal I can. And when you're in the hospital, it's really a different situation. You're really sort of almost at the mercy of what's happening in there. You know, you're sicker, yeah. uh, and and really, it's there's less control like you might have on the uh, on the outside world. So I think today we're not there yet. I think um, you know, ideally, you'd be like, all right, you know, I'm here for this particular condition. Where's the menu of stuff that's gonna, where it's gonna cost me and really how much it's gonna cost me um, or how much you charge. And I think part of that issue is too, there's so much a, a discrepancy between what they charge and what your insurance company has negotiated to pay. And if you have no insurance, what they're willing to negotiate or rate with you with. So until we get to a spot where, well, what we charge is pretty much what everybody pays and pretty much what you'll have to pay. And when we have that level of transparency, I think it's gonna be hard to try to reduce your inpatient um, hospital bill. Other than what we talked about before, just asking the questions, is it something that, you know, I really need, do I need it now? You know, uh, is, there, is there a way to um, either wait and see or do this at a different time maybe? That may not help as much because I know different benefits if you have it done in the hospital. Maybe it's a better benefit for you than if you have it done outside or vice versa. Maybe it's better if you have it done outside oh, instead yeah. of inside. Yeah. And that's going to be very variable. Um, 
but asking the question and having your loved ones, if you're, you know, unable to answer for yourself, but to or ask for yourself to ask that question: Do I need this? Mm-hmm. You know, um, why do and, and the why do I need it? Because that might come up later, especially yeah. if you're appealing it. So why why do I need that? So you're, you're, you know, your two outreach is going to be to your insurance company. So you at least know your plan better when you're in that situation. Uh, and really, it's going to be the provider asking questions. There are circumstances where, depending on your relationship with your primary care doc is, you know, you may reach out to them and say, I'm not sure what's going on in here, or I'm feeling sort of uncomfortable, or they're doing a lot of tests. Can you, you know, help me navigate through this? Oh, interesting. Um, I know, you know, when I was uh, in uh, practice, I had a, uh, because of my schedule limitations, I had this, this uh, group of folks that they just stayed with me over the years, you know, for the decade or so. They were with me, so I, if they had an issue, I would um, I would work through with them to try to figure out. Uh, more likely, if they were local on one of our own hospitals, where I can sort of you know look at their chart and try to figure out what's going on, and try to translate that for them. Or if they, when they were far away, I'd ask them more and maybe try to talk to their doc. I really think it's going to be variable as far as if your doc is willing to do that for you, or if you have what kind of relationship you have with your doc. But that can be helpful for sure. So you had patients that you knew well enough because they were outpatients, so you were their primary care physician, and they and they said, "Hey, doc, I'm in the hospital. Mm-hmm. What the heck is going on? What do I do?" And you were able to access their medical record and yeah. find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's um, kind of just going off on a tangent for just a moment. I've heard people say, why get a primary care physician? And you sort of answer that question, at least in this capacity, mm-hmm. to say, yeah, there's some benefits um, yeah. to having a primary care physician because they can holistically mm-hmm. look at all of you know the, all sure. of the care. So you have an advocate and a, a person who knows medicine and this complex sort of medical system. Yeah. They may not know all the details about the ins and outs of the healthcare system, but you sort of have this quote-unquote high-powered um, advocate because they're the ones who people are going to listen to with appeals and they listen to orders. So having that relationship with that primary care doc, I think, is valuable. Interesting. And I'm also thinking, too, when you're in the hospital, you know, you have the physician come in and out, the surgeon come in and out, but you'll have a nurse who's there, and that might actually be the person because they might be able to spend another minute, and that's the person that you say, I'm sorry, just a moment, can you explain to me what just happened? Mm-hmm. Because you might not get the physician who has yeah, the time to explain that's it. That's a really good point, and that, you know, that might almost be better because you typically, um, uh, in, in the hospital, the nurses will go through shifts, but I think it depends on which hospital, but a lot of times you'll have that same nurse on day shift for a couple days. So you'll, have some, you'll be developing that relationship with that nurse who you'll likely maybe not see that often because then there's sort of the, the text that distribute meds. So it's not like it used to be where the nurse is doing everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'll have that nurse assigned. A lot of times hospitals have everything written down. Here's your nurse. You know, here's the other five people that are on your team locally, like in your hospital bed. Uh, and the nurse is likely the one that's going to be the one that has the most medical knowledge you can have that conversation with. She'll know what the orders are. She'll know what's happening. And she may be the one that better communicate with you, um, you know, what's happening, what questions to ask. And, you know when things are really needed or you know what I don't know let me it's a good question let's actually get the doc back in here or let me ask the doc for you it's a fantastic point and maybe even easier to get the nurse to be available because the doc's in there quick and they're five floors away 20 minutes later doing other stuff yeah so he or she is the the nurse might really be the person that you're gonna stop and and ask those questions mm-hmm. okay um, so the the other than question going back to outpatient and primary care so um, we're told that we're going to get a new prescription. We're told mm-hmm. that we have a new diagnosis. What questions should we be asking the physician about treatments and tests? Uh, and how do we trust their response when, you know, 
I don't feel comfortable if you were my primary care physician and you said, you know what, Nicole, I think we need to change your medication. Mm -hmm. We're going to put you on a new med. Well, I'm sorry, Dr. Burke. You know, I, I would like is to know, I would like to know why, um, is, is there anything else you can put me on? Can you put me on something cheaper? Well, yes we can. And I, my first thought is, well, why didn't you mention that first? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's just name the obvious. Why didn't you say that first? Sure. No. So, what, so what, do, what do we say? Yeah. And I think there's a, a couple things. There's the, you know, what you say, which I think, you know, I, I've said as a, a patient before many times, you know, A, I'm paying for this regardless of. Where, how you're paying for this, it just sort of gets the physician thinking about it differently. I'm paying for this myself, um, and is there any other, do we need to do this right now? Is there something that we can, uh, can we hold off, and if something else happens or doesn't happen, then we consider it down the road? So like going back to your Lyme disease, could you walk us through that process? Yeah. So you, you came out with a rash, how, how would you, have, how did you say that to the yeah, physician? Yeah, so I might have said, oh, okay, um, instead of starting the antibiotic right away, is there a way for me to just sort of watch that rash to get a little bit better? It really hasn't been getting worse. I think it actually is getting better. You know, can I hold off for a couple of days before I start taking an antibiotic? Um, is there any medical, re and you would follow it up with, is there any medical reason why I should start the antibiotic right mm -hmm. away? Yeah, yeah. So my experience on the other side is the clinician, because I've had plenty of patients say, well, do I really need to do that? And I don't just say, oh, no, we were just going to do that for the hell of it. I'll say, well, here's the deal. Uh, if we don't do this now, which is certainly an option, uh, here's the potential things that might happen. We may make, you know, we may not diagnose this right away. It's unlikely you have it because of these things. And if we miss the diagnosis for a month, actually doesn't really matter too much. Mm. Uh, but typically we would get this test now. Or uh, we may say, yeah, for these reasons, if we wait, mm, it's not really, you know, uh, in your best interest. So I think having the, uh, the conversation sort of just it's okay for you to catch it as, do I really need this or do I really need it now? And I think depending on how the doc can communicate with you, they may just say, well, no, you don't really need it. And probably the, probably the, uh, the conversation that you, know, you should have in your head is, well, I could have it now. I maybe don't need it now and I may need it in the future. It's probably what they try to say, but maybe they don't have the, uh, they don't have the, uh, the uh, they don't say it like they, they should. But I think rarely is it a situation where docs are ordering tests because they get a kickback or something like that. that Which just I've heard really people happen. say too. Well, of course, the doctor gets a kickback for the prescriptions that they provide. They get a kickback yeah. for the tests that they mm -hmm. they do. I've heard a lot of that too. So, yeah. um, so I'm hearing you say, "Do I need that? And do I need it now?" So those yeah. are the questions we should be asking mm -hmm. our providers. Do I need that test? Do I need that prescription? Are there alternatives? Yeah. And do I need it now? Yeah, I think the I need it now helps serve the rest of the conversation and they can discuss with you know what, what to look for and what your risks are if it's a really low risk of something happening I'm personally willing to take the risk and say okay I'll watch for that and see got it if you missed the diagnosis by a few days or a month or so if it's really bad maybe I'm not willing to take the risk if it doesn't really matter I'm willing to take the risk so that's really just part of that conversation and rarely because it takes time will the doctor have the conversation to start they're really just saying well most doctors will do this I'm going to do this but it's worthwhile to use the patient I think to, to just approach the conversation. I think docs are willing to have the, uh, the dialogue when you bring it up. Yeah, good. So in our final few minutes, I am dying to ask you the question. So um, I guess twofold question is, do you know why, why does the health insurance industry lobby against the single payer system? Is my first sort of final, yeah. final question. My guess would be that they're really in a single-payer system, there's really not a place for commercial health insurance uh, payers. 
So it sound, I would think that it's more of a, a self-preservation type thing. There are a boatload of people who work for insurance companies, so there's a, you know, a large piece of our you know, uh, workforce in our country that you know, wouldn't be uh, doing those anymore, doing those things. I think there's um, more of a push now, we're seeing it in our own network, for insurance companies to try to do things differently. So like, well, we want to exist somehow, Maybe how we exist today probably won't be a long-term thing. Uh, it's, I think they may even realize it's certainly it's wasteful. Uh, it's expensive. Healthcare in general is expensive. We need to pull out insurance companies altogether. It's still expensive how we practice medicine in, in this country. But that's certainly a big chunk that you know, if it wasn't there, it would be, uh, it would be better. Uh, so I would think that that's probably part of it. It's, it's a self-preservation. And uh, we're seeing more of that looking towards the, uh, the future, um, uh, insurance companies really talking to larger provider networks to say, how can we do things uh, differently with you? The big piece of um, insurance that I think uh, systems typically don't have the ability to do is um, underwrite the risk. So I think to be an insurance company, at least in the state or maybe in the country, you have to have a boatload of money in the bank. So in case something happens, you can pay that out. So for a, a provider network to be able to just have a lot of that money sitting there, it's pretty challenging or impossible. Insurance companies are required to do that. They, they do. They have the money there. So if you almost partner up, right? Here's the deal: we can provide the care better. You guys have the um, the ability to sort of underwrite. I think there's always going to be that piece where you know the doctor's going to be paid, so somebody's going to have to do that. There's going to be medical management different than approving and denying MRIs. It's going to be. You know, are, are, is your population getting the flu shot like they need to? You know, are your folks with this particular condition getting what they need to get? Because sometimes when you're seeing the patient face to face, those things may not be on the top of your mind. There's all these other issues that are, that are popping up. So having some external medical management around, that's probably part of what's gonna wind up happening. What we're seeing in our network is the medical management moving from the insurance company, moving into sort of the, the provider part of it. So the providers really, um, uh, our network is really developing a sort of internal way to manage, you know, population health. And that's something, you know, that's relatively, you know, somewhat of a buzz term over the past decade, decade or so. It's becoming uh, more, uh, more popular and certainly more uh, um, fleshed out. Uh, so now we have a situation where a provider likely can do that better than an insurance company can. They usually have better information because they have all the clinical information. They can better manage pathways and, and ways to care for people that's how uh, um, care is more efficient, by the provider doing things differently. If they look at all their, their surgeons doing the, the knee surgeries, there's a huge variation. Let's change a few things to make it so there's less variation, quality's still great, cost is less, now all of a sudden the cost of care overall is less. Um, so there are steps to reduce the cost. And insurance companies can't really do that. They can just keep... But the providers can. Providers and that's can. why you're talking about the focus is more on what that's the providers are doing. That's why I think as the, yeah. the future sort of uh, moves around, some of those things now that get typically done by the insurance company, like you and our company does that, uh, will move into the, the provider themselves doing it. So there's going to be some stuff that's probably still going to need, need for some kind of insurance you know, to, to mitigate some risk. You know, people will go out of business if they have a big claim or so. But there's still going to be management of health care which is not unusual for other industries. You you try to streamline your whatever your process or your product is to make it a better product for less you know less your money. Car, you know, the Absolutely. Toyota. Yeah. 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 Look at the cars fifty years ago versus yeah. today, and you know there's so many different uh, 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 you know safety issues. You know the ability to uh, to make them differently, faster. There's, there's so many uh, so many pieces to it. 
I mean, do you, so my final question is, will, do you think we'll ever have a universal coverage in the U.S.? Um, I don't think it's going to be that simple. I think we're more likely to see, uh, well, I should say, I think the way we're built, it's still likely going to be the, the employer for folks that have employers that are likely going to be um, uh, paying for the, um, the coverage, the majority of it. However, I can envision sort of this hybrid system where there's um, you really negotiate directly with the provider. So if you're, you'll, we see provider networks getting larger. So you know, little hospitals are sort of being bought up and they're part of networks now. So maybe your company goes to the network and says, all right, we got to understand you guys do a pretty good job of doing some pretty streamlined care. It's pretty inexpensive. Can we you know, uh, work with you directly without having the insurance company uh, intermediary? Oh, okay. I see that and maybe if you don't have an employer, that's the universal coverage, which almost I guess with Medicare and Medicaid, how it mm -hmm. exists today, is sort of like that, but ideally you want to have in a true universal coverage. If you're a citizen, you get coverage, which isn't really the way it is here. You, there's a lot of hoops to jump through even to get the government insurance, yeah. uh, for sure. So I think there's, if we can, um, on the commercial side, do the right thing and really streamline the care and sort of take that cost out, I think it'll translate over into sort of the other care that, that happens for the, the, uh, the government uh, funded plans and there's the potential that we would be able to afford, a, uh, in my opinion, a, a, a partial universal uh, coverage. I'm not sure with how we are in our capitalistic society that in the United States it's ever going to be uh, like it is elsewhere. But that's just my, my opinion. You never know. Yeah. yeah. Any final words of advice or wisdom for people listening? Tips for navigating Stay the healthcare system? Stay as much as you can. <laughs> don't, don't. Don't use your health insurance. It, I mean, isn't that ironic? It's there to help us, and then when sure. we need it, it doesn't always doesn't yeah. always cover what we need it to cover. Yeah, no, it is. It's uh, it's be as uh, be as oh, know your health plan the best you can. I think that's important. That was uh, know what coverage you're signing up for. It's like when you do your retirement plan. I think most of us don't know much about that either. But it's a good idea to look into it. It's complex. Your homeowners insurance it turns out you're not covered for earthquakes and lightning. Well. It's a 50-page document. I don't read it. I don't know for sure. Just like any of those complex things, sort of bite the bullet and, and look through and understand. You might be surprised what your insurance co covers or doesn't cover. So I think it's important to do that and then be aware that you have that ability to have that customer service person and just really, when, when something's coming up, ask the questions. You know. Ask the questions of the insurance, ask the question of the providers, yeah. ask, ask questions. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Nicole, it was great. Thank you. Really appreciate your insights. I hope that for those of you who are listening, learned a little bit more um, and uh, can use some of these tips and uh, apply them for yourself. Uh, whatever healthcare coverage you do or don't have, and we didn't even get into healthcare reform um, and and those types of coverage as well. Again, if you uh, have enjoyed the podcast, please check us out on Facebook and like us there. You can also subscribe to get the latest podcast as well. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh for Health Stories.